This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. In every business owner's career, no matter where you are, people always talk about scale. I mean, they need to scale. They need to scale. You need to scale. And, and in many ways, that's how do I do my job with less of me or with fewer people or with um, technology? But what do you buy? When do you scale? Most firms, I will tell you, scale way too early. Uh, my guest today will probably have some thoughts on that as well. And we will... Um, really dig into not only when to scale, but why to scale and how to do it properly and not scale to be corporate, but scale for the small business owner. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. I appreciate you joining today and listening to us. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. As always, what we focus on here is tips and tricks, lessons that can't be taught in school. So there are things that you learn in the marketplace, things that you learn from successful business owners and successful leaders that you can incorporate in your business. For most of my clients, we do a strategy session, a plan, and then steps to make more money, how to grow your business financially so you can get to the point of scaling. For the specifics on that and eight easy steps to make more money without spending anything on marketing or advertising, grab my free book at freebookfromadam.com. It is quick, it's easy, it's step-by-step, -step. it's exactly what you need for those of you who need growth in your business. As always, we're brought to you by powertexting.com and C-Suite Radio. Powertexting.com gives away a free hotel stay to one listener of every podcast, four and five-star resorts at 17 different places around the US and the world, and someone will win that hotel stay. So stay tuned for more information on that. Today's guest is not only gonna talk about scale, but he's a landslide winner of the Silicon Valley Founder Showcase, was a CEO and co-founder founder of Topic Marks that was later acquired by Tagged. He served in a variety of positions and advisory roles to CEOs, working with business owners every day on how to run their business better. He's lived in four countries, speak, speak six languages. We are speaking one today. Maybe he'll throw in a few others if he gets really excited about it, but we'll stick to English for this one. And if we have time, and I will make time, he's been recognized by the U.S. government as an alien, as an alien of extraordinary ability. I'm excited and terrified to know what that is, and we will find out. He's also the author of two books, Scaling Silicon Valley Style and apt metrics, astute results. Roland Seablink, thanks for taking the time and joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation, Adam. It's a big honor. I'm really excited to talk to you about what you've done, not only in your career in scaling your own businesses, but how you've helped others. And obviously, 
um, scaling is not just about Im implementing technology. It's understanding the metrics of why you're doing things and how to run a better business that way. But to start out, um, you've got it. You've got an MBA. So you mm -hmm. went to school and, and did the traditional, um, some of the things that we talk about, you may have learned there a lot you learned on the job, but how did you go from the traditional path, college MBA to an entrepreneurial journey, not only for yourself, but helping others? Mm -hmm. um, actually, I was already um, on an entrepreneurial path even before the MBA. So I was very lucky early in my career to be involved with the emerging internet very early on. So in 1992, I was already teaching college students how to write their first email. And this was when there was not even Mac or PC clients for email available. So people had to log into a mainframe and use all these arcane commands just to write an email. It's that early. So this um, is pre-prodigy or whatever. Uh, that's pretty, pretty, pretty much everything. Like literally, <laughs> <laughs> you had to almost be a computer science student. And since I was teaching not computer science students, but journalism and communication students, you can imagine that it was quite a challenge to get the non-technically minded people to start getting involved with new media. But as we all know, things started evolving really quickly from there. So uh, it led to us co-founding the first Belgian uh, web design company was called Land, and then very fast after that I joined Telenet uh, which was the very first European broadband uh, initiative for consumers. Um, we ran uh, broadband internet or we started to run broadband internet at a time when the penetration of this old narrowband internet, we've almost forgotten to remember the modems that would go like <laughs> right. <laughs> that technology had only penetrated into 1% of households and we were already starting on broadband internet. So this was really early, but it taught me so much about being in an entrepreneurial situation, uh, developing things from scratch, being extremely focused on the customers, looking beyond what your current first batch of early adopters are saying and seeing how we could turn this into a mass market product. And so that was a gigantic experience, uh, truly scaling up like no one had expected it before, growing 900% year after year after year, um, you know, turning from a one-man operation into basically um, hundreds of people supporting that product and um, uh, hundreds of thousands of customers in a matter of years. So I didn't have a word for it at the time, but let's just say that was the first experience I had with working in a true scale-up, a company that grows from like, 10 to 1,000 people in a matter of three, four years. And uh, that was an, what I thought at the time, a unique experience. And for most people, it will be a unique experience. I, I still cherish it, of course. Um, but what was very interesting about it for me was that you would basically see a company develop with that kind of growth also in fast forward. At the time, we would call it like putting a videotape in fast forward. That technology has also disappeared in the meanwhile, right? Right. Uh, but um, you could see it, see it develop much faster. In that time, we had probably seven strategies. We had five CEOs. Uh, we had at least 10 different organizational structures. I don't know how many times I moved my desk anymore, but it must have been at least 40 times in those four years I was there. So... Um, you could just see this company developing so fast. And that gave me a big interest in, okay, how do you manage companies better? Just seeing the difference between great managers, bad managers, great leaders, bad leaders. So that led me to 
go and study an MBA in, uh, in Switzerland, in uh, Lausanne. And um, I did learn a lot, but you're also right that I really noticed that an MBA is geared towards very traditional businesses, not big growth businesses, not scale-ups, companies that still need to figure out a lot along the way. So ever since then, I've kind of made it my mission to reconcile the more traditional thinking of what an MBA teaches us with the specific requirements of a startup growing up. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And, and that's exactly why I wanted to have you on the show, on the show because um, you have that perspective. Now I want to take back you to two things. One, I spent a week skiing in Luzon and um, I had a pizza and a beer. It cost me $40 US in um, 1994 um, to tell you how the dollar was doing against um, the Swiss currency at the time. Beautiful place, wonderful skiing. Uh, I, that was my first week. I skied twice in my life. Once was in Park City, once was in Luzon. So the Swiss Alps and uh, Park City. And then I, get, I quit skiing because you can't really beat those two places. But I want to come back to mm -hmm. when you started um, uh, the business where you said there was one person then, and then it grew and grew and 900% growth. Was that a business that was built on the love of, it sounds like the love of technology versus trying to build a business. Where did the building a business come in to that? Was, that, was it built at the start or did this thing take off and it was like, wow, we've got something going here. Let's run with it. Actually, it was a very specific situation. Um, the main business that was being built up was a new competitor to the old telephony um, monopolist. So this was at a time when in Europe, the markets were opening up for competition and the um, local cable companies. So compared to the Comcasts or Cox companies in America of uh, the world, the locals there had built a consortium together with AT&T to try and build a new telephony company to compete with the old monopolist uh, Belgacom, as it was called at the time. And um, the main business really was intended to be like the fixed lines to the households, uh, which was meant to be a cash cow for years and years and years to come. And on the side, there was this emerging technology, something weird called internet. And so they hired, at the time, young folks like me uh, that were that had, didn't have much to lose yet and that were somehow involved in that new technology. And so at some one time, I still remember us running the entire internet unit with 90 people, the oldest of which was 27, you know. Uh, that was... <laughs> And because nobody over 30 would dare to touch it, it was just too risky and uh, didn't feel like a stable business. Right. Let's call it uh, a little uh, protected area inside a much larger unit. And the, the larger unit, of course, was a, a very conscious joint venture between uh, established players to try and provide competition in an established market. I love it. That's, that's, I, I love the perspective that you just gave there. One, one of my friends, a guy named Scott Duffy has a quote, um, realize when you've gotten lucky and give it everything you've got. Now oh, yeah. you ended up in a, an area of business that it was going to explode. Now you happen to be at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And so some of that was luck. And I'm sure a lot of it was business savvy of you and the other people you were working with. Mm -hmm. When did you know that this thing was going to grow? And it wasn't about 
necessarily growing the business. It was about managing the the growth because it was going to happen anyway. Was there a, an epiphany where you're like, this thing's going to go and we have to figure out how we're going to do it and not blow ourselves up? <laughs> uh, yes, a very good question. I guess there was always the um, trust and confidence that it could grow very fast because we could just see the gigantic uh, difference in, um, in user friendliness between the old telephony modems and the way that uh, broadband really works as we've all experienced by now. But still, the reality was definitely showing something else. The epiphany started when we started to uh, to look for alpha trial customers, and this was with very early modems. Um, basically, the, the installer would have to come over and almost find a whole closet for it because the technology was so early. And still, people would be standing in line to please, please, please get one of those modems. Even after press reports appeared that three of them had caught fire right in the middle of the household um, and at the family's home, uh, people would still stand in line to please have that thing in their household. So that was a very good indicator. Um, and also when we had then launched the beta trial, it was still unpaid, but it was supposed to be at arm's length as you do a good beta trial. So with customers you don't know in upfront, right? And uh, that was about 60, 70 people. And the critical thing with the beta trial is always once you convert it to a paying product, you have to start telling your beta customers, okay, time to start paying, dude. <laughs> It was a hefty amount, you know, people were not used to paying 40, 50 euros a month, uh, similar to dollars more or less for, uh, for broadband service. And so the fact that every single one of them signed on without as much as a sales call, that made it very clear to me, like, this is going to run like crazy. Uh, and then from then on, we really had to start worrying about the operational aspect of to still having to send installers to every home and drilling uh, drilling a hole through wall and uh, getting the cables in the right place because guess what the pc was not in the same place as the tv right so all these very early challenges we had to deal with in a very uh, concrete fashion working out procedures uh, helping installers deal with that um, teaching them bedside manner almost if you will to how to handle customers worry about the the walls being damaged very interesting times I bet, I bet. And so transitioning from sort of the, the technology side of it to, to the business side of it and, and some of the lessons that you learned along the way, we've all been in, in times in our business, whether our mm -hmm. business is just getting started or whether we've been in business for years, we've had those fast growth sort of hair on fire, everything's going in all directions. Mm-hmm. And we've had those times and that sounds like once, once your business got to that point and, and everywhere that you've worked has hit those levels, you need to run with it and let it go. But at the same time, you need to understand as a business owner, how do you manage it without deflating that growth bubble? Absolutely. What, what lessons did you learn in a, in a super fast growth, 900% a year? Um, mm -hmm. and, and we're not talking about small numbers. We're not going from, you know, I guess one client to 900, but <laughs> you know, that, I'm that's fast, right? The 900% growth rate starts adding up really quickly if you do it a few years in a row, right? Right. So, I, uh, I, I bet. And <laughs> I mean, some people are listening being like, I would kill for 900% growth. 
I would kill for 100% growth, but whether it's 20% growth or 50 or 100 or 900, the business can get away from us. How did, what did you learn? And A, where did you fail in the business getting away from you? And how did you make sure that it didn't? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, a few things come to mind. Um, one was definitely to keep people focused on the fundamentals. Um, basically, in an environment like that, it's almost like a tornado, right? There's very little to hold on to because the environment changes so fast. And so when people got stressed and um, when they didn't know what to prioritize, it was very important to keep them focused on the fundament fundamentals, including myself. I would tell myself, okay, what really matters here? What matters here is one, the product works. Second, the customer has a good experience. Three, we have service when something goes wrong. And four, they pay their bills, right? So <laughs> very, very simple way of thinking about the business. But in a tornado, sometimes those four fundamental tenets are all you have to hold on to. And that is still in a way uh, how I talk to a lot of current startups that experience a tornado for themselves, like, okay, let's look at the fundamentals. You have these four parts of the business that need to go right. You need to be ahead of the, of the you know, your product needs to be very attractive. You need to acquire customers. They need to be happy with the services you provide and they need to pay their bills. What else do we need, right? Right. <laughs> So, so that was the first part. The second part was to then be pretty ruthless about saying no to everything else. Um, because as soon as it started growing, you then get all the people that want to jump on board with their own ideas, with you know, doing partnerships with you. Um, I've had lots and lots of ideas from people more senior in the organization than me that I really learned effectively to say no to. That's a skill in itself, to say no to the CEO, for example, right? Um, and so those, um, I, I really learned the discipline of not entertaining every single idea and losing focus just because of, of the idea. The ideas may sound attractive, but it's not actually going to help you in driving up those fundamentals. I love that. And we can pretty much end this right now at <laughs> ruthless about saying no, but we're going to keep, we're going to keep going. But I, I want to take a second on that. Warren Buffett says, to be successful, you have to say no 10 times more than you say yes or something along those lines. Sorry, Warren, that I just butchered that. But you have to be able to say no. And with your, with your business and with employees and with coworkers, mm -hmm. um, when things are going well, it's so easy to say yes um, mm -hmm. and take your eye off the ball. Um, I, I had a guest... Um, John Bates, he was a guy who he calls it his $80 million MBA because he raised mm -hmm. $80 million and the business went out of business because they okay. were so focused on what they were doing. They missed everything going on in the economy in 2001. And all of a sudden there was no more money. And um, so that you can do that to a fault, but most people say yes because mm -hmm. things are going well, so it's easy to say yes. Yes, I've got money for this. Yes, I've got bandwidth for this. Yes, it'd be great to take my business online into bookstores, into the mall, into um, another country. When you think about saying ruthless about, being ruthless about saying no, what did, what did that mean to you? And do you have an example of some things that maybe you said no to that other people are probably dealing with? 
Mm -hmm. um, so um, very often, I would say the most, uh, the biggest category of what people have to learn to say no to and be very disciplined about is growth opportunities. Um, we always in every business want to grow faster, believe me or not, even when you grow 900%, you still want to grow faster. So you also learn it's never enough anyway, right? So <laughs> right. People, always, people always want more. It's just like those four, what did you call uh, Stephen Covey, I guess, called them the four, the four false friends of fame, um, money, sex, and uh, power. Like you never have enough of those and that's just human nature, right? Um, but um, I think... It comes from a good place in wanting to strive for more growth. But what people often fail to realize is like, yes, there could be some extra growth coming from these opportunities. But what is the cost? Not just in terms of money, but primarily in uh, management attention and basically the time of the leader to spend on that. And what can they then spend less time on? And so I think the key point is, what is the cost in terms of distraction from the current business model? And is that worth it? Because when push comes to shove, when, you, when your business starts running and you have, let's say, a few tactics that work together to how do I acquire customers, how, well, how do, I, how do I reach out to them first, how do I nurture them, how do I then acquire them and serve them well, you've got some standard ways of doing that in a business that starts running. And I would say, let's at least have every new idea challenge the existing idea like, can it not just add to the bucket, but can it do it better, right? Because if it doesn't do it better, there's probably no point in adding it to the mix if it's just a few percent improvement. Like, let's say, if my current tactic of um, reaching out to customers is to put a big advertising sign in front of my house for whatever business, and that brings in 10 a month, right? Um, and now somebody says you should do online advertising, but it better bring me 20 and not two more. You know, otherwise it's not worth the distraction. I love that. We're talking to Roland Sieblink on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. As I said, powertexting.com, uh, my sponsor gives away one free hotel stay to one person uh, who listens to the show. Um, four and five star resorts, Vegas, Orlando, Phuket, uh, Bali, Spain, uh, New York, Rocky Point, if you're near me in Phoenix, Arizona. Just go to podcasttrip.com and register to win. One person will win, and um, it's super cool. So I want to come back to, to what you were just talking about is the distractions that we get and whether your business is really ready to scale up, meaning you need to hire people, you need to get a warehouse, you need to, get, um, you need to invest big dollars in order to the next level of business, or whether you're one person just banging away at your business, doing well, selling insurance or selling oils or running a hardware store, the, the number of options in the world are out there. Whether it's marketing and should I do Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook or Google ads, or if it's adding technology, do I need this software or that software? They all sound good, right? Every one of them sounds like I need this. Mm -hmm. Even if you're really good and really ruthless about saying no, they still sound good. How are you able to help businesses determine where to go, which ones are right, how to think about it using metrics and using the way that you help people scale 
in saying yes to the right things? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is um, for any idea that comes up, yes, it's always good to acknowledge that idea generation is good, right? But I would always ask, um, you know, is the improvement material enough to actually spend time on this? And in the startup world, venture capitalists will often tell you, like, it's not good enough if you run a startup that can improve your competitor's product 20%. It's not even good enough to improve it 100%. We typically look for a 10x improvement. Now, we may not need to have that same high standard for just adopting a new system in a business, but I would say, do not just say, like, for a few percentages of improvement, it makes sense to go through that whole motion replacing everything. In most cases, you can just learn the current system a little bit better and get most of that benefit out of it, just like with what you have already. So that would be for, for systems. Um, I would say the, um, the other points that I apply a lot is um, the parts where you can add the most improvement is ongoing innovation in the things you already do well. So highlight what are the strengths of the business that they already do well and turn that into kind of a flywheel of activities that keep reinforcing each other, right? This comes from Jim Collins, um, great writer, of course, in business theory, and I recommend all his books. Uh, the latest monograph, The Flywheel Effects, is uh, absolutely required reading if you want to understand how to set up a limited set of activities that keep reinforcing each other to just get that business model going faster and faster and faster. Um, another point I want to highlight is many businesses, on the contrary, also have uh, weak points or almost blind spots. And what almost never works is to try to turn a weakness into a strength. That I would not recommend. Like it's always going to be some kind of a weak spot. However, in some cases, the weak spot is so leaky. Um, for example, the kind of business that's great at sales uh, they bring in, um, you know, 30% new customers every month, but on the back end, 40% of customers leave them every month because they didn't get the service that was promised, right? Right, right. Are they going to get be great at service? Probably not. But can they stop the bleeding? Yes, and they should. That's a critical shift in the business that they need to go through to at least bring that service level to, um, uh, to an acceptable level where people at least stay it may not reach 0% churn, but they could at least get down to 20% or 10% churn, and then the business model would be profitable. Does that make sense? It makes sense. So, so it's understanding um, where do more of your strengths and limit your weaknesses at, at, at a base level. Um, but, it, but it's really understanding where you can, I guess, get the, the next – the biggest bang for your buck. Um, I was trying to think of something more witty or, or more smart right there, but I, but I think that works, is figuring out where are the small tweaks, or as my, my coach James Malinchek says, small hinges swing big doors. Mm -hmm. So where are the small hinges that we can do in the business? And, and you wrote the book, Scaling Silicon Valley Style. Yep. And it, it, there it is. Um, and in that, right, you're able to, to tell people maybe in, in different language, but it's figuring out what do these businesses do? These tech heavy businesses that are, you know, built on 
they have a lot of people, but built on fewer people. But where can we learn from what some of the big tech firms have done? You live in, in the Bay Area and you've worked with a lot of technology companies. You work with a lot of businesses that go through a hyper growth mode and you probably see some commonalities. Mm -hmm. What are some of those commonalities that you see that one, what are the problems that you're trying to combat? And two, what are some of the things that, that you've seen them implement that the listeners can implement in their business, regardless of size, because business is business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing I would say is the whole reason why uh, I started writing this book. It's only been recent, maybe 15 years, 20 years that people have come to realize that a startup is a completely different business from a traditional uh, business. And they used to even here in Silicon Valley tell technical founders, oh, just find a guy with an MBA. It was almost always a guy in those days, of course, right? <laughs> right. Uh, no more acceptable these days. Um, and they said and the MBA will help you run the business side. And it's 15 years ago that they started realizing actually that doesn't work because as we said in the beginning, an MBA trains people to run a traditional business not a startup. A startup is a company looking for its business model still, having to iterate a lot, having to pivot, having to go out and talk to customers, that all doing all that development work. And so that has become common knowledge now in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think a lot of your listeners will also know the book uh, Lean Startup by Eric Ries, absolutely recommended reading as well. Uh, what was missing was guidance for the middle phase. Like what happens when you then hit that famous product market fits that point where actually the business starts running and people start buying your product and how do you then turn it into a much bigger business over time and I saw many founders completely flounder there because suddenly their key focus on that product market fit was now this had gone because they'd reached that now what was the next step and they said growth and then growth means growth everywhere like does it mean hiring people spending more on marketing uh, basically spending 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 right and they didn't have a great outcome in front of them anymore, other than, of course, reaching their IPO at some point in time, which is way too far ahead. It didn't provide operational guidance. <laughs> and right. so um, my, my goal with this book was really to start giving guidance in a few phases as to right after product market fit, this is your next big challenge. That overall guidance that helps you understand this is what is really important right now, and that also means that I can let all the other fires burn. This is a quote from Reid Hoffman, famous writer of Blitzscaling, right? That's yep. one characteristic of these fast-growing companies that the CEOs have to be comfortable enough to let some fires burn simply because you don't have time if you also want to capture all that growth. And um, if I want to go run through the, through the um, framework a little bit, I do think it applies to a large degree to non-tech businesses as well. Um, the first thing you figure out after you've brought a product into market that really starts having traction is now you need to standardize your uh, marketing and sales channels, your distribution basically, right? So I always recommend to people, if you haven't gotten a predictable funnel yet that you can rely on and that you know what to do to get to new customers all the time, then that's your key priority. And you have to get to a point where the amount of money you can expect to get from a new customer is going to beat the cost you spend to acquire that customer probably two or threefold so that you have enough margin and become profitable enough to be able to spend on your marketing and sales. Now, I think many of, of your and even my customers are even hesitant about spending anything on marketing and sales because, you know, they're so good 
uh, people should just come and find them, right? Right. Well, exactly. My <laughs> phone should be ringing off the hook. Absolutely. And um, I think that's uh, where a lot of businesses fail, even in startup land, that um, the, the businesses that have become really successful have figured out that success is driven to a large degree by actually spending enough of your revenue back into the marketing and sales cycle so that you keep acquiring customers. Um, no, that's great. And I, I, want, I want to bring it back to something you, you had just said about having um, a systematic business. You, you put it in different words, but you, you get to the point where you can predict what the next month is going to look like mm-hmm. on, a, on a regular basis. So a lot of us um, think about, when we think about scaling, and, and I'll bring it back to scaling a little bit, is a lot of us think, all right, things are going well and I'm making money. I better buy a software. I better hire an employee. I, I've got to get, if we're small, I've got to get my virtual assistant or my assistant, right? Um, but we don't have any regularity in our business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think that's a really important point that, that a lot of businesses, big and small, need to focus on is make sure that you have some visibility into the future before we begin the scaling process. And, and we're, we're running short on time, but I want to make sure we hit this. Mm-hmm. How, well, one, everyone listening and, and viewing, because we're on YouTube as well, but um, make sure that you have regularity in your business. But how do you identify that regularity to know, all right, it's time to think about scaling, right? If we're thinking about this as business owners and as CEOs rather than business owners, when do I make the investment? When do I hire the person? When do I look to the next level? Like, how does one know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very good question. So let's take the case here um, for what I think is most of your audience people do, do not get funding from external sources, right? So where it's basically the business funding their own investments, they're, they're not necessarily attracting venture capital. Um, in that case, I would say, typically it's gonna be a balancing act between how much new business can I attract and how much capacity do I need to provide to serve that business? Um, I see the most successful service businesses typically working towards a model where the owner gradually steps away from doing the actual delivery of the services and starts becoming more and more the person that is responsible for bringing in new customers. Advertising agencies are classic examples where, you know, a great copywriter and a great account manager uh, start a new advertising agency. They have some clients they've previously worked with sign up. And the first thing they do is tell them, I'm not going to write copy for you anymore. I'm not going to be your account manager anymore. I have juniors for that now. Right. So that I can keep focusing on acquiring new customers, right? But of course, they still provide supervision, so they kind of get away with that. And that's a typical model that you see in many service businesses where uh, the difficult transition from the owner, founder being the producer of the services, basically selling their own time, to now transitioning to a point where they can start selling other people's time, of course, with a margin on it so that you can um, invest even more and have more reserve for the future. And I would say the time when you want to make that decision is when you really start chafing at the bit of finding, I don't have enough time anymore to do it all myself. 
That is, if you don't reach that point yet, then I think you have to be careful about starting to make that investment. And many service businesses also have a problem with regularity of revenue, as you say. So the more you can do to already turn clients into more ongoing engagements, recurring revenues, um, techniques to keep them, having them sign up, or if they make work on an appointment basis, having them come back on a regular basis so that you can predict more, there's an 80% chance that this customer will provide me with X amount of revenue over the next five years. Then you can have a much um, more realistic basis on which you can start making that investment because it's all about payback. And if you don't know what revenue is going to come in into the future, how are you going to calculate your payback? That's perfect. Like there are so many things. So everyone listening, cause I'm going to do this. We need to listen to this again because there was so much in that last minute and a half, give or take of ways to think about our different, our business differently than we do and think about it from not only metrics, but those metrics regulated, those metrics forward, those metrics normalized. Um, that's awesome. Um, so we've got to wrap up here. So I've got one question that I think has three parts. Okay. Um, what the hell is an alien of extraordinary ability? Am I one? And why does the U.S. government recognize people as such? Go. Well, <laughs> the funny and probably the answer you probably have to cut from this podcast before you uh, send it out would be just ask my husband what my extraordinary ability is. But <laughs> that's, I think that's a serious thing. Um, really, it's a category of immigration status. So as you can hear from my accent, I am not native to these American lands. I am from the Netherlands originally. And so that meant when I moved to the US, um, believe it or not, in the current political climate, but there is actually a pretty diligent process of vetting people and making sure that they uh, would contribute to the American economy. And so one of the categories that they have is if uh, the person is pretty accomplished already and has uh, won prizes and uh, launched big businesses or other accomplishments in their home countries, then they might get a special status in the U.S. because they feel that this person could contribute a lot to the U.S. economy as well. And they call that an alien of extraordinary ability. And I was very lucky to be awarded that category by the U.S. Immigration Services. Well, that's fantastic. We are lucky to have you. And as someone, and Roland and I talked about this, um, in our, our pre-interview or pre-call for this, I had the opportunity to live in and work in the Czech Republic mm -hmm. and they didn't call it that, or maybe they did and it was just translating to Czech and I didn't know, but uh, I was welcomed into to the Czech Republic to, to teach in public schools there and we're not America, again, without regard to um, political policy or political banter. We're not our country without having people who are smart, who are ingen ingenuitive, if that's a word, who make our country better. So I appreciate everything you do for the people that you work with, the people that you've hired, the people that you've employed, and the people on this show across the country and in many other countries, um, English-speaking countries that listen to this podcast with your knowledge. Thank you so much, Roland Seablink. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Adam. It was a very great honor. You are welcome. And thanks everyone for listening today to the Entrepreneurs Podcast. Look forward to having you on the next one. Thanks. 
You've been listening to The Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.